Um, if you would this morning, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you'll remember, Colossians is a prison epistle written by the Apostle Paul in response to his friend Epaphras who founded or started this church at Colossae. Epaphras was just concerned that a lot of the false teaching in the city of Colossae was going to find its way into the church. And Paul deals specifically with legalism and mysticism. And we looked at that in detail in the latter part of chapter 2. You know, Paul really begins the, the first half of Colossians by a deep theology of Christ and the gospel and knowing who He is and knowing who we are in Christ. Uh, before we can stand against anything, we've got to be standing on something. Paul understood this, and that's why he wants to remind us of who we are and who he is. And uh, so he settles that foundation. But then when you get in chapter 3, there's a transitional statement there. In verse 1 it says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above not on things of the earth. And so Paul uh, shifts gears here from a deep theology and an intimate knowledge of Christ to the way that plays out in our everyday life. Uh, Our behavior is determined by our beliefs. He said, if you love Christ, if you're risen with Christ, okay, prove it. And so we looked last week about heaven on earth and how uh, it's not talking about uh, some type of beach in a tropical climate, or uh, you know, we talk about heaven on earth, we're talking about the ambassadors of Christ on this earth, spirit-filled believers who are accomplishing God's will on the earth. Uh, but there's more to it than just that. And, and Paul gets even more specific. You know, if we're going to live for Christ, there's going to be some things that we have to put to death. And so we're going to see the flip side of that today. And with that in mind, let's read the Word of God together. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. It says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walk sometime, when you lived in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We, so, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this church family, Lord, uh, that you put together for such a time as this. And I know each and every one of them have their own battles and their own burdens. And I just pray that you would encourage them in you today. Lord, that Christ would be magnified above our problems, above our temptations, above our trials. And Lord, if there's somebody that's lost that doesn't know Christ today, I pray that you would give them repentance and faith today. Lord, just enter me as sin and self. Fill me your Holy Spirit. Be with those that are sick and couldn't be here today. Be with those that are watching on live stream. And we give these things to you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Now, we're going to deal over the next two weeks and possibly even the next three weeks about a subject that seems to make a lot of people very uncomfortable, and that is the subject of sexual sin and really uh, biblical sexuality in general. 
You know, some people might even be uncomfortable with their children hearing this, but I, let me just put it this way. They're going to hear it anyway. In our world in which we live with the technology and everything just in your face, uh, you're fooling yourself to think that you can totally protect them from this issue. So if they're going to hear it anyway, they might as well hear it in the right context. You know, uh, biblical separation is not about isolation. It's about insulation. And insulating means that you know the good, you know the right, you know the light, and so when you're confronted with the wrong and the lies and the darkness, you know how to recognize it when you see it. You know the better way. And so um, it really shouldn't make us uncomfortable. And I'll be honest, it doesn't make me uncomfortable at all to talk about this because I'm not going to say anything that the Bible doesn't say. It has a lot to say about human sexuality. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if I look out there and I, I sense some, un, some uh, people that are uncomfortable or there's some tension or you're getting a little anxious, I'm going to drop the plow even deeper. Like it's just going gonna, gonna to make my day. And so you might as well amen and smile and nod anyway. I'll tell you like I used to tell the folks at Little Sandy, we'll have to eat at a restaurant with the Pentecostals. And we don't even have any Pentecostals here, not many of them certainly. And so, uh, you know, the Bible is just so relevant. It's so fresh. And it's dealing with these issues that we deal with today. And I don't think I have to tell you how saturated our culture is with sexual sin. And so I want to see what the Bible has to say about these things because this is a part of living the resurrected life. It's a part of dying to Christ And so I want to preach on the thought for the next two or three weeks on how to win against sexual sin. How to win against sexual sin. Now, before I even get into my points this morning, I want to preface everything that I'm going to say with this. We need to understand that everything that we're going to talk about today is in reference to being yielded to the Spirit of God. When I tell you how to win against sexual sin, I'm not just trying to appeal to your will. I'm not just trying to have a pep rally and say, you know, this is really bad, don't do that. This is really good, do this. If I just do that, then all you're going to be is frustrated. I'm talking about these things in the context of understanding that you can't do it by yourself and I can't do it by yourself and we have to be totally dependent upon the Spirit of God to win against sexual sin. Everything we're going to say is, being, uh, is in reference to being yielded to the Spirit of God. We must be dependent. I know this is, going to, this is real deep. Y'all get ready. Get your notes ready. We must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit in order to be holy. This is true of every area of our lives, but I would say especially in the area of sexual purity. A simple list of do's and don'ts will never get the job done. And when I give you this list of how to overcome sexual temptation, what I'm saying is these are the areas in which we must depend on the Spirit of God to help us. We need to understand that when it comes to the do's and don'ts of sin and temptation and living right, every time I give you a list, every time I give you a do and don't, I hope you understand what I'm doing. I'm setting up a Mount Everest for you to see and say, wow, I can't do that. Lord, I need help. 
I'm not setting up a Mount Everest in order to say, hey, you can climb this. You don't even need a harness. Just get after it. That's not what I'm saying. And even if you think about the law of God in the Old Testament, the law of God is a reflection of God's character. It's not, an, it's not God's expectation of what He ever thought we could do or accomplish. It, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ and to show us uh, how just depraved and needy we are and that we're in need of a Savior. And the same thing is true not only of salvation, but also of sanctification in the Christian life. Lord, I can't, but You can. And so we need to understand that as we get into these. So how can we win against sexual sin? The first thing, and again, don't get excited. I've only got two points this morning. I thought I was going to get through this in one message, and I I think I'm turning into a Puritan. You know, the Puritans could write a whole book about one verse, and I'm getting there. And so I only have two points this morning, and and, uh, so we're going to get through this within the next two or three weeks, Lord willing. But the first thing, if we're going to win against sexual sin, we have to recognize the enemy within. We have to recognize the enemy within. Look at uh, verse 5 of chapter 3. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then he gets specific. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry. Uh, that, That word mortify there, it literally means to put to death, to kill it. Put to death your members which are upon the earth. Now the word members simply means the parts of our physical being, our hands, our feet, our mouth, etc. We understand that sin is a spiritual problem, but sin is always going to work its way out through our physical being. That's how sin takes place. When lust uh, is conceived, it brings forth sin. That's what happens. And notice, this is so important... Notice that Paul commands us to put to death our members in the area of sexual sin. And he doesn't give any kind of condition to go with that. He doesn't say, now this is only for those that are going to struggle with sexual sin. He just presupposes that everyone that reads this letter is is going to or has or will struggle with sexual sin at some point in time. He says, therefore, uh, mortify therefore your members. That's very personal. And so Paul just presupposes that everybody is going to struggle with this at some point in time in your life. That means this message is relevant for everybody in this room, regardless of whether you are, what uh, stage you're at in your life, what age, uh, marital status, whatever, it's relevant for us today. And... We need to recognize that when it comes to sexual sin, the number one problem is not what's around us, it's what's in us. Now, I understand we live in a very lewd society. I mean, you better have the armor of God on if you go into Walmart. Because I'm telling you, people have lost any kind of dignity at all. I don't have to tell you all that. It's the people of Walmart is a real thing, okay? And... um and so I realize that it's everywhere. And, but the thing is, that's not the worst enemy. The worst enemy is within. It's the person that you stare at in the mirror. The temptation and the potential for temptation is there. And when we understand and recognize what we're capable of, 
when we understand that sexual temptation is alive and well within us, we should run to the throne of grace and seek the Lord's help to kill those things that are within us. I mean, I know it comes as a shock that we possess that within, within us that God says need to be put to death, but that's what He said. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That we can have those kind of thoughts and temptations, but it's just reality. Notice that God's Word commands us to kill our lusts, not to embrace and celebrate them. I think I need to say that again for the current society that we live in. But God's Word commands us to put to death our lust, not to embrace and celebrate them. The beauty of the Gospel is not that Christ will affirm us in our sin, but it's that Christ died to save us from our sin. That's the Gospel. Not that He would celebrate our sin, but He would save us from our sin. We live in a society that celebrates sin. Listen, our lust can be very powerful. Sin is a dominating force, and don't ever forget that. Many today are celebrating. You ever heard this phrase lately? Somebody celebrating them being their authentic self? Or they've been free to just be who they are? Do you ever hear people talk like that? It's everywhere today. You know what they're really saying? My conscience has been seared with a hot iron. In other words, I am totally given over to my lust, and I'm proud about that. In other words, they, they talk about, you know, there are some people that talk about coming out of the closet almost as if it's a salvation experience. And the reason is they have been set free from their conscience. They have been freed from their conscience. They've been given over to a reprobate mind. I'm thankful that God can still save anyone. Nobody's outside the reach of the grace of God, but that's where they are at this present time. Uh, when, you know, the Bible talks about the conscience being seared. If you think about somebody that takes a hot iron and they, they take that red hot iron and they brand their cattle, uh, you know, when you do that, the, the, it's going to hurt the cow. I mean, they're going to jerk back and I'm sure moo and scream or whatever a cow does, but... Uh, after that's over with, that skin is hardened. They can't feel anything. That's, that's what a seared conscience is. It's not touched by truth anymore. It's not convicted or guilty over sin anymore. And people celebrate that. But listen, you have to get this. And I probably could have done a whole series on this, but I'm just going to skim over it, give the cliff notes and move on. But what we're seeing today is no different than the pagan gods of old. Uh, just in the past two or three weeks, the, the Church of England and uh, the Catholic Church in Germany have uh, approved, they voted to bless same-sex marriages. Now what's interesting about the situation with the Catholic Church is there was hundreds of bishops in Germany that voted to do this against the Vatican. This is going to cause some division within the Catholic Church. And I, I mean, it couldn't happen to a nicer group of folks, i just say that. You know, for years, the Catholic Church has, tr has tried to sell their unity. Oh, we're, we're the unified church. All these, these Protestants, all these churches, they're so divided. Listen, friend, you take the churches that really believe in Sola Scriptura, and I promise you, they're a hundred thousand times more unified than that church is about to be. And so, it's going to be an interesting time to see them, you know, eat their own, but it's coming. 
You know, when you don't stand on the Word of God and you believe in progressive revelation, you can make it up on the fly. And that's what's happening. Uh, And so, but what it goes back to, what they're saying is Jesus is happy and proud over these homosexual marriages. He's going to bless us in, in who God made us and this is who He made us to be. It's no different than the pagan gods of old. When you look at the pagan gods of old, especially like even in the Old Testament, um, there, it was so closely linked to sexuality and worship, you couldn't even distinguish them. In fact, uh, the, old, the, the temples of old, the pagan temples, uh, they would have temple prostitutes and they would have orgies in the temples because uh, they were acts of worship to, that, to those gods. In fact, um, it was so bad that what the temple prostitutes were, that culture grew up knowing, if you, were, if you had daughters in that, in that world, in that society, you knew that one day your daughters would be called to service in the temple to be a prostitute. That's where most of them lost their virginity. They would, they would go to the temple as an act of worship, and they would have sex with a total stranger, and that was considered an act of worship on that altar to that pagan god. And in fact, did you know, have you ever wondered why the Israelites kept leaving the true God to go to the false gods. I mean, I'm not a very smart man. But if I saw my God working all the plagues of Egypt, and I saw Him part the Red Sea, and you know, I saw Him uh, leading in a cloud and a pillar of fire, I'd probably think, now there's a lot more to this God than there is those gods. What was the attraction? It was the unbridled sexual ethic the gods that would allow you to do whatever you wanted to do in the bedroom, and not only did those gods allow it, they celebrated it. Have you ever wondered why uh, Moses got so mad when he came down the mountain? God had already told him up the mountain, hey, you need to get down the mountain. The Israelites have melted their gold. They built a golden calf. He already had that information. But when he showed up, he saw something that made him so angry that he threw the law of God, he threw those tablets and broke them. What, what did he see that was different than what God told him? Not only did he see that they were worshiping the golden calf, they showed him dancing naked in front of the golden calf. Where did they get that from? They got it from Egypt. Do you know that the Egyptians were so vile when it came to sexual ethics? And I don't even want to get that graphic about this, but you can understand what I'm going to tell you. Do you know that when people in Egypt died, the males would actually be buried almost immediately, but they would wait several days for the women to start decaying because the embalmers had such a horrible reputation for necrophilia. That's how bad it was. That's where they got that from. It's, listen, what we're seeing today, this isn't Christian. It's anti-Christian. It's paganism. They've created another Jesus and another Christ in their own mind, and it's a God that is celebrating them and their sexual sin. It's no different than the gods of old. It's just been repackaged. Listen, you go back and you study out the, the gods of old and the, the pagan temples and everything that used to go on, you can't separate their worship from their sex. You can't do it. We're seeing the same thing today. That's why we've got to be so careful, folks. There's a, there's a very deep spiritual connotation to sexuality. They're very much so. And so we need to be aware of that. 
You see these people that are being turned over to their lust, and they think it's like freedom, but whenever I hear that, it reminds me of Winston Smith in, in Orwell's book, 1984. You know, he was trying to uh, undermine and fight against the tyrannical government machine, and he confided in the wrong people. And at the end of the book, they uh, arrest him. They begin to torture him. And as you get toward the end of the book, you think, man, he's going to stay strong. He's going to stay strong. But at the very end of the book, he, he yields to it. And he said, I love Big Brother right before they killed him. That's how the book... I, I, that was a spoiler. I'm sorry. I should I'm totally brain freeze there. I'm sorry. But, but that's not freedom. That's tyranny. And people are celebrating their own chains. It's crazy. That's not freedom. And when it comes to temptation, we're either going to submit to Christ or we're going to surrender to our lust, but we're going to surrender regardless. Submitting to Christ leads to freedom. Submitting to our lust brings slavery. Jesus said in John 8.34 that he that committeth sin is the servant or the slave of sin. The slave of sin. And listen to this. Prior to the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. It was unthinkable to celebrate sexual sin in this country. Now, I'm not so naive as to think that it wasn't going on. It was. But you weren't going to celebrate it. You weren't going to worship that lifestyle. It was taboo for a reason. It was looked down upon for a reason. There was shame for a reason. But we've gotten to a place just like it was in the days of Jeremiah. The Bible says they couldn't even blush over their sin. That's where we're at right now. Can't even blush. But when we look, you know, I know this is going to make some of y'all feel pretty old. It's been over 60 years since the 60s. We've had time to evaluate the fruit of the free love movement. And if you'll remember, uh, this kind of all started, it, it happened about the same time the Vietnam War was going on. You remember one of the slogans? Make love, not war. Um, but really, they weren't talking about love. They were talking about lust. And isn't it amazing how we've been on such a downhill slide that now, instead of the make love, not war, now we've got love is love. That can apply to anything. We're going to get there in a minute. But as we look back on that movement and the fruit of the free love movement, what, what has it left us with? Well, here's the stats. We, we've seen an epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases, some of which have killed thousands of people. And in Africa, AIDS has killed millions of people. We've seen a countless number of fatherless and broken homes as a result of this. Uh, we've seen sexual abuse in staggering numbers. One in four girls and one in six boys, uh, by the time they reached the age of 18, would have been sexually abused in this country. And I'm going to say it's a lot higher than that. That's just the ones that are reported. We've seen rapes at an all-time high. Over 60 million babies have been murdered in the womb. We've seen even a further decline into the LGBT revolution, even to the point of chemically castrating and mutilating our young people. It breaks my heart when I hear this younger generation and I see this younger generation and they don't even know if they're a male or a female. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. 
How sad is that? How wicked have we gotten? And we think that the United States of America is somehow going to avoid the judgment of God. God help us when it comes. This is the fruit of the sexual revolution. Does that sound more like slavery to you or more like freedom? It's slavery is what it is. It's destroyed people's lives. It's destroyed families. It's destroyed this nation. That's not freedom. You can't thumb your nose at God and His created order and expect everything to work out. You know what the word perverted means or perverse? It means a twisting or a turning. This is a perversion of God's created order. You know, without the biblical sexual ethic, we're reduced to brute beasts. Shepherd dogs. That's what we are when we rebel against the created order of God. Now listen, I'm not throwing stones this morning. Don't confuse passion with anger. There's nobody that's outside of the grace of God. There's no sin that can't be forgiven. There's no sin that Christ can't give us the power to overcome. We're going to get there. But I need to communicate the severity of the situation. The thing is, when we talk about this revolution, it's not going to end where it's at right now. I hope you understand that. Lust can never be satisfied. It started with the sexual revolution. Then it went to the homosexual revolution. Now we're just, you know, uh, seven, eight years removed from the legalization of homosexual. I, I don't call it marriage, it's a mirage. Homosexual mirage. Now we're into the trans movement. There's also a movement that's trying to get off the ground now to legalize pedophilia. There's also a movement to try to legalize sex with animals. You said it can never happen. Let me ask you this. Why did God think it necessary to say in the Old Testament law not to have sex with animals? It's because man is depraved to the core and there's no bottom to the level of sin that he will stoop to. It's headed that way now. It's never going to stop. Listen, what ethic? Once you abandon God's ethic on marriage and male and female and sexuality, once you abandon this What's going to stop you? What roadblock or what speed bump are you going to run into to say, hey, wait, that's wrong? <laughs> there isn't, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's no bottom to that. And so we need to be aware of these things. See, instead of a brokenness and repentance, we as a nation are celebrating these things. We're celebrating, as I said, our own change. And it all goes back to individuals who don't even recognize their own sinfulness and their need of a Savior. They're consumed by their lust. Now hopefully that's not you today. But if so, you need to repent. You need to come to Christ. And if you are saved, you need to get that thing right. It's going to destroy you. If you're going to win against sexual sin, you're going to have to recognize the enemy from within. The enemy is you. It's in all of us. But the second thing we need to know if we're going to win against sexual sin is you need to rejoice in your marriage. And now listen, for the next uh, half of this sermon, I'm going to really preach strong on marriage. And I understand that not everybody in here is married. We're going to deal with that next week. And if need be, the next week. So don't feel like you're left out. Uh, but this is very important. I have to, I have to get this out here. Uh, look at verse 5 again. He says, mortify, put to death therefore your members which are upon the earth. And the first thing he brings up is fornication. 
And I know that this text doesn't deal specifically with marriage, but it does imply it by the use of this word fornication. Now, fornication comes from the Greek word pornea. And pornea is where we get our word pornography from. Uh, Now, pornea is a very broad term. It's important to know this. In fact, pornea is the umbrella for all sexual sin. Uh, Adultery, homosexuality, uh, sex outside of marriage, all those are types of pornea. Now, most people when they hear the word fornication, um, they, think, uh, they automatically equate it with the sexual sin of single people. That's definitely a part of pornea, but that doesn't tell the whole story. But here's the best way to understand what fornication, what pornea is. Every sexual sin that can possibly be committed is committed outside of the bonds of marriage. That's what pornea is. That's what fornication is. And if I'll say this, man, this is so important. I believe that there's one glaring mistake that the church has made in recent decades concerning sexuality is they have made sex into a, an ooh thing, a, a taboo thing. It, it's totally bad. We don't even talk about that. That's not biblical. That's not biblical at all. Um, the truth is that sex is a beautiful Wonderful thing. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And I guess in our day in which we live, I need to define what marriage is. It's one man, one woman, one lifetime. That's very clear. You know, we live in a day, there's such a movement um, by these people that claim to be Christians, even so-called theologians, that completely dismiss what Paul and the apostles wrote and and most, if not all, the Old Testament. They just cling to the Gospels. And one of the main reasons they do that, the words of Jesus, they say that Jesus never condemned homosexuality. Yes, He absolutely did. Go back and look at what Jesus said in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, where He talked about what marriage is. He went all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. When He even quoted from Genesis, when God created the male and female, and for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, they twain shall be one flesh. That is the definition of marriage. By proxy, he preached against homosexual marriage. There is no such thing. You won't find one example, one positive affirmation, nothing to support that in the Bible. Nothing. So yes, he did. And by the way, the words of the apostles are inspired Scripture too. Very, very clear on that. But the Bible has a lot to say on this issue. I mean, think about in the Old Testament, the entire book of Song of Songs is dedicated to marital love. Now, I know that there would be some preachers that would say that uh, the Song of Songs is an allegory about Christ and His bride. And listen, I'm sure there's some application that could be made there, but the book is about marital love between husband and wife. (laughs) There's no getting around that. In fact, the Song of Songs is so explicit that Jewish boys are not even allowed to read it until they turn 13. And God saw fit to put it in there because it's a gift that He's given to husband and wife and there's nothing dirty about it. And so we need to not only talk about the negative, but we need to stress the positive. Hebrews 13 and verse 4, it says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. 
marriage is the God-ordained outlet for sexual expression. And marriage is such a great barrier against sexual sin. Um, I just want to go a couple of places and I want you to see this for yourself. <clears throat> um, keep, go ahead and mark Colossians 3. We'll try to come back. We may not make it. But I do. Let's go ahead and go to Proverbs real quick. Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. It says, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. That's not talking about drinking water, folks. That's talking about sexual love within marriage. Verse 16, Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of water in the streets. Let them be only thine own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. And why would thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? Uh, That makes y'all uncomfortable. I'll read it again. It's right here in Holy Writ. And uh, the word ravished, it literally means intoxicated, to be taken away with. And so he encourages uh, and blesses that kind of marital love and fidelity. Drink waters out of thine own cistern and not another. But he goes even deeper. I feel like uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, let's go there really quick. First Corinthians 7, verse 1. It says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, growing up in youth group and as a teenager and going to summer camp, I cannot tell you how many times I heard this verse. And it's good, it's in Scripture, but they never read past that. They just stopped with a negative. And let me tell you, for a single man, it is good for you not to touch a woman. And it's specifically talking about in a sexual context or any kind of contact that might lead to a sexual context. Just not good. Don't do it. But in verse 2, it says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, we, this is exactly what we're talking about from Colossians 3. Uh, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's talking about sexual love within marriage. And so it doesn't just stop with the negative. He doesn't just say, hey, don't do this. Hey, this is bad. Sex bad. He doesn't stop there. He goes to the positive. And in verse 3, he says, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Now that word power there is speaking of authority of, or of bodily autonomy. And I mean, this is, guys, this is not a suggestion. This is a biblical command to take care of your spouse sexually. Like, I can't even make it any clearer than that. 
And, you know, almost, almost without exception, almost without exception, every couple that I've ever counseled where there was adultery involved, there was problems in the bedroom at the house. And let me say this, if, if, that, if sexual love with your spouse is dirty, if it seems like a chore, if it's problematic, uh, there's something wrong. Now, I will say this, I have run into situations where it wasn't necessarily something directly wrong with the marriage itself. Maybe it was something that happened to one or both parties even prior to the marriage. Maybe it was, maybe it was some type of sexual abuse. Maybe it was something because, listen, that stuff affects us. We would like to think that people don't carry that kind of baggage into their marriage, but they do and it causes problems and sometimes it causes flashbacks and sometimes it causes triggers. That stuff is real. It happens. Uh, but a lot of times, there's a problem in the marriage. You see, uh, a good, blessed sex life within marriage, it is the reward and the result of a healthy marriage of sacrifice on both parties. And, you know, mar- sex within marriage is incredibly important, but it cannot exist by itself. And I liken it to this, you know, if I go to Sonic or Dairy Queen and I get a blizzard, I like a cherry on top of that blizzard. It's, it just adds to it. And I like cherries, but I've never been to Sonic or Dairy Queen and got up to the counter and said, yeah, I'll have a cherry, please. You, you, you want a cherry on top of your son? No, I'll just have a cherry. Just put a cherry in the cup and we'll be good. I've never done that. See, that's what it's like when you have an unhealthy marriage. That, that's what the sex life is like. It shouldn't be like that. And, and so... There's a problem there. There's a, there's a breakdown in communication somewhere. There's some bitterness somewhere. There's a hidden secret somewhere. There is a problem there. And it needs to be worked out. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be brought before God. And it, it's your, he says right here, it's your responsibility. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Well, what is due benevolence? It's what they decide on. I mean, I can't make that any clearer. Uh, you know, when you, when you said, I do, you, you agreed to take care of more than just the, the uh, maybe it was a roof over the house or food on the table or whatever else it might be. And if that's not happening, uh, there's just a prime temptation there. I'm just, I'm, listen, when it comes to adultery, let me say this as clear as I can. There is never an excuse for adultery. But there's always a reason. There's never excuses, but there's always reasons. And we need to, we need to pay attention to these things. And, and I'll go ahead and let's go ahead and read verse 5 in that 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 7. I mean, he said, Defraud ye uh, not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontency. And so he even says, If that's not happening, it's an open door for Satan. That's just all there is to it. And here's something else we need to get as I come in for a landing. You may never have thought about it like this. But our sexuality within marriage is an act of worship to God because we are submitting to His plan and His boundaries for marriage. We're letting God define what sexuality should be. That's in total contrast to what we talked about in the Old Testament gods and their sexual ethic. It's in total contrast to the world today that would tell you, if it feels good, do it, 
you know, whatever you desire, whatever you want to do, that, it's automatically right just because you want it. That's totally different. We, we're allowing God to determine what's right about sexual ethics. So I'd say married people, rejoice in your marriage. I mean, and think about it. Think about how much better this world would be if you just had people that were committed to God and committed to their spouse. It's just so much. God's plan is so much better. Two loving parents, a father and a mother, male and female, uh, joined together, committed to God and each other, raising the children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do you know how many problems that would solve in this country? Man, it would, you wouldn't even recognize it. You would not recognize it. Married people rejoice in your marriage. Single people, y'all just hold on. We'll get to y'all next week. But I would say this, save yourself until marriage. It's a safeguard against all kinds of problems. It's a safeguard against heartache. I mean, just for the single people, maybe you're looking to get married or younger kids who get married in the future. Listen, save yourself for your spouse. Give that to God. Submit that to God. And like I said, it just it avoids so many problems. You know, when you give yourself to someone in that way, and I would say it's equally as sinful, but I will say this, it's more dangerous for the ladies. Let's just be honest. You know, doing the work that I did for so long at the abortion clinic, I saw some pretty heartbreaking things. I tell you, I... I treated the ladies, I treated them with as so much compassion as I could muster. But the thing that I had no tolerance for whatsoever is the little punks got their girlfriend pregnant and they drug them there by the back of their ear and the back of their neck to go kill their baby. I had no tolerance for that. I'll never forget as long as I live. I was there one day and it was packed, man. There were so many women in there that if they brought a visitor, there was probably 20 or 30 people standing outside the front door. And so there was no parking, and so normally people didn't park next to us. But there was this one young man, he was probably 18 or 19, and he pulled in, I mean, he was from here to these chairs for me, probably closer to that. And he had his girlfriend in the side, uh, the pasture seat there, and she was just slumped over, man. She didn't want to do it. You just, it was all over her face. And by the way, it's been statistically proven that the overwhelming majority of the time, when the man wants to keep the baby... The woman's going to keep the baby. But when the man doesn't, it's, it's all up for grabs. And anyway, she was slumped over, and he pulled over, and he walked around, and he, she wouldn't even get out of the car. She, he opened the door. He literally grabbed her by her arm and had it twisted up like this, was almost dragging her feet to get in there. And I said, hey, you little punk. I said, why don't you man up and take care of that baby? You can tell she don't want to do it. Why don't you man up and take responsibility for this? I said, that's your child. It's, it's going to call you daddy one day. And I mean, I just went, he wouldn't even look at me until he got all the way to the door and then he turned and flicked me off like the real man that he is, like the real hero that he is. I've got no patience for that, friend. Now listen, God can forgive even in that situation, but we need to be aware of where we are as a nation. And the reason I felt so sorry for that young lady is, I mean, the, the truth is, ladies, I would just say this. If a man's not willing to take care of you, if he's not willing to put a roof over your head and food in the fridge, if he's not, if he's not somebody you can trust to be the father of your children, if he's not somebody you can trust to be there when times get hard or you get sick or whatever else happens, you need to send them on down the road. 
It's just that simple. It's too, it's too precious. What you have is too precious to give it away to somebody who's not going to take care of you in every aspect of your life. That's just, that's just the cold, hard reality. You say, why are you talking about this, Brother Brown? Because I love you and I care about you. That's why. I want to close with this. Lust is something that we have all struggled with at some point in time. This is not a stone-throwing session. We need to understand that God's grace is sufficient to forgive you of your past. Whatever you've done in the past, it's just that, it's in the past. And what you need to do is let God get you past your past. I'm thankful there's no sin He can't cover. There's no sin He can't forgive. He can cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. He can uh, place it as far as the east is from the west. You can be forgiven. But you can also have power over your sin. He can give you strength over that. He can also change your future. But you must first submit to His sexual ethic and say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. But you also need to seek His help and say, God, I can't do this on my own. But by Your grace and for Your glory, I want to honor You with my sexuality. God God has given you a gift that through obedience you can give back to Him. And so... Paul says very clearly in no uncertain terms, he says, mortify, put to death your members. If you're going to live the resurrected life, if you're going to live a life that's dead in Christ, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. He begins with fornication. And so, this wasn't a suggestion, it's a command. And by His grace, we can do it. But we have to know what it is. We have to know our need of Him. And it will be worth it in the end. It really will. There's, there's nothing more that brings more glory and honor to God than a committed Christian couple committed to God and each other. It's the greatest earthly picture we have of Christ and His bride. But are you dedicated to that?